welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. Um, it is with great delight that I introduce you to Emily from 21 and Sensory in our latest episode. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Emily. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's really fantastic to have you and really can't wait to talk about all the wonderful things you're doing and some, some key issues regarding late diagnosis, uh, female autistic experience, uh, and in particular, uh, sensory processing issues, which is something that you have a lot of experience, personal experience, lived experience, and uh, professional experience with, I suppose, now as well. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, it's weird to put it like that, but yeah, potentially <laughs> some professional experience too. <laughs> yeah, so some really important stuff. But we've also, as always, got our co-host here, James Gordon. How are you doing, James? Oh, yeah, I'm really excited. Um, yeah, I can't wait to uh, yeah. discuss everything with Emily. All right. So, yeah, Emily, thanks again for coming on to the podcast. As we always uh, do on the podcast, uh, we'd like to sort of start off with your sort of story, really, about how uh, you came to know that you were autistic uh, and your diagnosis, because I'm aware that you had a, a late diagnosis. It's uh, detailed in your in your blog. But it might be good just to talk it through a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, and just, yeah, just give us sort of an overview of your your story as to how you ended up with your diagnosis and, and uh, so forth, if that's OK. Yeah, sure. So if, I'll start from when I was little, I guess, is the best place to start. Um, so I think when I was a baby, my parents first kind of realised that I had a lot of sensory issues Um Obviously, they weren't very kind of clued up about that, but they realised that I was quite a kind of reactive and sort of different baby. Um, I reacted quite badly to like loud noises, even kind of people like sneezing or being kind of picked up or hugged. I had very odd responses. So there was always that kind of indication, even from kind of a small age, that I couldn't kind of tolerate certain things even kind of things like clothing and stuff like that like I couldn't wear socks for some reason I just always end up taking them off and these kind of sensory things just kind of kept popping up throughout my kind of childhood sort of years but it wasn't until I got to primary school that anyone really kind of picked up on that sensory stuff that was going on um was it primarily tactile sensory stuff I think so yeah it was mainly kind of tactile and also kind of um I would say noise based as well um Mm. like sound based and I guess really primary school was going to be the first kind of environment where I would experience a lot of that all at once um so that was really where it was picked up so I was struggling a lot in primary school um and aged I think I was about kind of seven or eight I was um not sent to an educational psychologist but it was suggested that I go and see one and that suggested by who I think it was a kind of school and talking to my parents kind of thing so I think they had kind of maybe picked up on stuff but I was struggling to get into school in the morning I had really bad kind of separation anxiety from my mum and I was just actually struggled with the environment so um yeah. This is primary school, right? This is primary school, yeah. yeah. So age sort of eight, I went to see an edu- educational psychologist and they said, I think you should go and see an occupational therapist because um, they kind of picked up on some sort of sensory bits. So that was the first time my parents and I had come across 
sensory processing kind of difficulties and on the NHS I went and saw an occupational therapist like under child services and that that really really helped me it's been I think I've said it on my blog as well it's been the most kind of helpful form of therapy for me um occupational therapy has it really helped me to kind of desensitize um myself so before seeing an occupational therapist I couldn't do basic things like brushing my hair or brushing my teeth because I couldn't tolerate that sensation so just kind of working with an OT like once a week every week was really helpful in terms of like desensitizing myself and Mm. there's still exercises that I do today from like an occupational therapist that really still help me (laughs) how long Um, were you seeing the um, occupational therapist for how many weeks I think it was for a few months Mm. And I had like kind of blocks of sessions on the NHS, but then obviously you kind of get too old and then that support runs out. <laughs> um, Curious about the, the teeth brushing, uh, actually, because uh, my son, my autistic son, uh, who uh, is aged uh, six, he's always had the same uh, similar kind of uh, issues with when it comes to brushing teeth. Very, very, uh, he's very sensitive around the, the, that area, really. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I imagine this is quite quite common with 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 people who have sensory processing difficulties. Um, that kind of teeth brushing and, and teeth brushing is actually really important for just general health as well. So it's a bit of an issue. Uh, I'm curious, what kind of guidance did the OT give you with that? How did he or she? Yeah. Mm. So it's all about desensitizing yourself. Mm. So a lot of it is to do with kind of exposing yourself to that to that feeling more and more because obviously I was avoiding it completely if I could build up my tolerance that was the best way to do it but there was also kind of things like um you can get like these rubber kind of finger covers that are like meant for like teething children to brush their teeth so like not using a toothbrush but using something way softer to start out with and like just like building up slowly I think I couldn't just go straight in with a brush like I needed to build up from you know like a child's toothbrush or like a kind of baby one all the way up and that really helped great okay so you saw the OT that that really was that was helping you and then yeah what happened after so I had an IEP at primary school so an individual educational plan I think they're called EHCPs now so that allowed me help in my SATs because they realized that I had a lot of processing difficulties as well in terms of understanding instructions and questions. So it wasn't really labeled as, you know, a kind of difficulty as such. It was just processing difficulties and they thought I might maybe be dyslexic or have dyscalculia, um, but that never really came up again. Um, So What, what age are we talking about here? This is kind of, I would say maybe kind of year four year five maybe eight or nine eight or nine, nine right or okay mm-hmm. yeah so um yeah I sat my um sats in year six and had um I think it was like 25 percent extra time I used to get extra time just because of the um processing um difficulties and then yeah nothing was really picked up on at primary school my teachers didn't understand my sensory difficulties at all I didn't have any other support other than having that kind of extra time and yeah that was primary school it was hell (laughs) I hated it yeah and then um yeah the shift to secondary school was really difficult because obviously now knowing I'm autistic change is really difficult and going from you know being situated in the same classroom 24 7 to having to go around 
you know, a whole school was really difficult. So yeah, my IEP followed me from primary school to secondary school. So again, I would get extra time. Um, but again, just muddle my way through year seven, year eight, year nine. Um, I just really struggled throughout um, secondary school and sixth form. I stayed on at sixth form after doing my GCSEs. But yeah, it was a real struggle having to sit 11 GCSEs as someone who didn't realise all these things about them. <laughs> so um, yeah. So if, I don't, if you don't mind me, just mm-hmm. interjecting there, you say it's a struggle. It was a struggle for you. How? Yeah. In what way was it struggle? Was it? Did it really impact upon not just your academic progress but also your mental health? Definitely. I would spend most lunch times up in the Senko's office crying because it was a quiet, safe space away from the hell that is a secondary school dining room and playground. And she knew me. She knew that I could. You know, I just needed to sit and have a cry because. I just couldn't bottle it up to the end of the day. I just could not keep all this like pent up emotion of being in this crazy place for hours each day, five days a week. Um, So I think it definitely had a toll on my mental health. Um, I did kind of see a homeschool link worker at secondary school um, in terms of my mental health because I was finding it really difficult. And I did go and see CAMS as well for some like CBT sessions. So it was all a lot. Yeah. But none of my friends knew. They just thought I'd go to a lunchtime club or something. I keep, I just kept everything very under wraps. So no, no one knew I was struggling. <laughs> mm, that must have been so difficult for you. So you got cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT yeah. uh, from CAMS. That, did that mm-hmm. help? Looking back, I think I didn't realize that actually it was bringing a lot of stuff to the surface and I was actually leaving feeling kind of worse than when I started because all this stuff was being brought up and you talk about it for an hour and then you're just expected to get on with your life and I'm like no no no. like you've brought all this up now like I'm thinking about it and that's I think a very autistic thing and I don't think CBT is quite meant for autistic people it's just it you can't just talk about something for an hour and forget about it. <laughs> it stays with you for like the rest of the week. So I think I did find that quite difficult. I know a lot of people do find it quite helpful, but I think it needs to be altered slightly for autistic people. What you've hit on there is really, really important, actually, because when, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, like many mental health therapies, are based on presumptions of the, on the way that a person's, you know, cognitive processes work you know mm-hmm. and those presumptions are based on research predominantly on research that's been conducted on uh, neurotypical people largely so the whole kind of premise as to what it's based upon is based upon non-autistic people and th- therefore the whole kind of therapy might not really work you know it's an entire, entirely different framework if you if you like towards mm-hmm. cognitive thinking so i totally agree with you and, and it may actually be a, a big reason as to why I mean, there's many, many reasons, of course, as to why autistic people uh, struggle so badly with their mental health. You know, so many social reasons, you know, the stigma and the social exclusion and misunderstanding, and misconceptions, loads and loads of reasons, employment discrimination. But some, something I think we haven't talked about very much, at least on this podcast, um, is maybe the sort of inadequacies of the mental health therapies that exist for autistic people. That has to be a problem as well, well worth highlighting. I'm glad you bring bring it up. So, so that's something that you would like to see um, looked at, presumably. I think so. I think I've, I've looked again more recently and it's very hard to find counsellors or therapists who specialise in autism and who won't just kind of write off that side of you because as an autistic person, 
I have very kind of specific like cycling thoughts and my brain's made up differently. So it very much, um, I don't know, latches onto things and won't let, won't let it go. And yeah, I, I need a completely different form of therapy to help me with that, I think. Um, yeah. And I think it also points to the fact that early identification is crucial because if you identified as autistic and then, you know, obviously there isn't, there isn't now, as far as I know, a CBT or a mental health approach specifically adapted for autistic people or neurodivergent people, as far as I know. But even if there was, it, well, you wouldn't have had it because it wasn't, you weren't identified as autistic early on. So again, it speaks, it speaks volumes to the importance of early identification. You can't just have the, the support in place if the, 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 the provision of the support isn't being made for the right people. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. you wouldn't have got it either way. No. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a big problem. I mean, I know James uh, and I talk about this a lot. I don't know if James, you want to say something about this, but in our charity, the London Autism Group Charity, we recognise that and we really only use, uh, as far as we can, autistic mental health experts, mm -hmm. really, uh, to, to support autistic, autistic people and their mental health. Uh, so, yeah, James, I don't know if you want to say something about that. Yeah. Hi, Emily. Um, uh, first of all, just going back, I totally agree. I, I found a lot of parallels in what you were saying um, with sensory struggles that you were growing up and also your experience of education. You know, it's it's, it's spot on. And I think um, it probably is for, for most autistic people as well. There's so much more that needs to be done. But I think things have improved from I'm now 46 years old, so... I probably went through it a lot earlier than than you did. Um, so the understanding is is slowly getting better. It, certainly in, in the OT, the field of OT, things, you know, that you said that's one thing that's, that benefited you. Um, and I, I'd agree um, with, with my autistic son as well. Um, OT has been the main helpful thing for him. But then um, looking at um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I, I would say that's just not suitable at all for autistic people and the whole the focus on autistic behavior is totally wrong you know this focus of this this um obsession that um people have with autistic behavior and um trying to modify it trying to modify autistic people to fit in with the rest of society um it is totally wrong as well and i think now we're getting a, we have um, the autistic advocacy community and um we're, we're learning to speak out against these kind of therapies and hopefully with autistic experience leading the way, we're going to form our own, find our own uh, ways, of, ways of coping and, and educate non-autistic people about them. You know? Yeah, I think there's been, there's been a lot of that kind of this year being mentioned about um, behavioural therapy and how it kind of teaches you know, children and maybe adults as they grow up to suppress their stims and things like that. And I just mm. think that that's really wrong. You shouldn't need to teach someone out of something that is self-regulatory behavior. You know, the, the way we stim is how we kind of release stuff and process the world. So I really, yeah, I really do disagree with kind of behavioral types of therapy. Absolutely. And it's, it's sad to see it still be prevalent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did a recent live stream with one of the researchers that was behind that, that research looking into um, uh, the effects of uh, stimming and then taking that away and, and what that does. 
um, and the benefits of stimming actually um, to mental health. Hopefully there'll be a lot more research like that coming along. So the next generation will be much better supported, hopefully. Totally agree. Thanks. Thanks, James. Totally, totally agree with that. So if you wouldn't mind, Emily, just continuing your, your story. So what yeah. happened then? So you were saying up until the end of, you know, you really struggled through, your mental health took a terrible toll. You got yeah. to the end of secondary school and then and then what progressed after that? Um, so I stayed on at sixth form and did three A-levels. Um, that was a slightly better time because my focus was only on three subjects and I could kind of um, kind of pour my heart into like the coursework. I've always been much better at coursework than I am exams because obviously exams are a very pressured environment to be in. Um, so I decided that um, I did want to go to university, but because I wasn't 100% sure what design course I wanted to do, I went to a local university and did an art foundation course for a year. Um, so also because it was local, I could stay at home. Um, I knew I wasn't ready to leave home, stayed at home and kept that pretty quiet that I was staying at home. On the art foundation course, I think we were like a few weeks in and we were given this like assessment form for dyslexia. So I'm age 19 and I'm like, okay, you know, it's just like an initiative throughout the university. And um, I did it and then a week later heard back and they were like, we think you might be dyslexic. We'd like you to come and have an assessment. And I was like, oh, really? That's that's great. That's good to know at the age of 19. Um, so <laughs> wow. Me, what, you, what, yeah, what kind of emotions? So you were you were I was just annoyed. Mm. <laughs> I was annoyed because I probably could have got way more help. And it had kind of previously come up a little bit like, oh, you might be you might be dyslexic or dyscalculic. I was pretty sure because I had maths issues that I'd be um, the latter. But um, on the day I found out I was severely dyslexic. <laughs> so that was, it was good to know in my art foundation year because I knew I wanted to stay on at the university and it got me on the radar of the student disability services at my university. So they were aware of me. Um, and it meant that I got a dyslexia tutor, which was really helpful. Um, so it was quite beneficial and I got... Um, student like disability allowance so I got like a laptop and um the best thing was getting a dictaphone which I'd never come across before which was excellent because I can't retain information from lectures I can't write quick enough to you know I can't listen to a lecture and write down stuff at the same time so being able to listen back to lectures when I was writing essays was excellent so that definitely helped me having that um so yeah after that year I decided to stay on at that university still living at home and um, study um, a three-year degree in graphic design. Yeah, and then I think I started up my whole kind of 21 and sensory presence online when I was 21, hence the name 21 and sensory. Um, so that must have been when I was at university. So that's when I kind of, I don't know, a lot of my sensory issues were coming to a kind of front just because university is quite a scary environment of people the similar age and there was a lot of kind of peer pressure and stuff like that and when I looked online I realized that actually a lot of stuff was based in the US and it was all kind of sensory processing stuff written about babies and toddlers and I was like trying to look for stuff because babies and toddlers grow up <laughs> to teens and adults and I couldn't find anything about just sensory stuff for adults like where, where you know these kids don't you know magically grow out of you know sensory stuff um so that's why I decided to start kind of writing um in the form of a blog which you've come across and um then like later on I started doing kind of illustrations on Instagram but yeah so I graduated in 
2016. After you graduated, you got this, you got you got a, a job in the industry, mm-hmm. everything's going reasonably well, your mental health better at that point? It's kind of up and down. I think I was struggling a lot with, I would get quite um, kind of depressive episodes that would just kind of every kind of few months rear their head a bit. Um, so mm. I was on, um, and still am on kind of anxiety, depression, med- like medications that just kind of help level me out a bit. So it's always been like an underlying thing that sometimes pops up and can get bad and kind of fades away again. It's I think for a lot of autistic people, it's always in the background and it kind of flares up is what I'm trying to say. Um, But I think it was a bit more kind of um, steady um, in my kind of later 20s, if that makes sense. Um, Do you think the the sort of the struggles and and the struggles probably is a a word that underplays it? Probably a better word is the kind of traumatic experience that you went mm -hmm. through during your formative schooling years, you know, when you went primary school and secondary school. Do you think that, that that trauma has carried its way through your life still, you know, today it's having a play, has an impact upon your overall sense of anxiety, mental health and so forth? Do you think, do you think that's the case or? I think so. I think that sort of stuff never really leaves you. And I don't know, I find it difficult that, that people really miss their school years I find that really difficult or that people want to become teachers and stuff like that because my experience was just not it just wasn't good in any way I don't know why you'd want to go back into that environment I find it very difficult to to understand other people um who who miss those times because but I know everyone obviously has very different experiences of school but I think it's something I do still kind of carry through with me and as an autistic person it, it I don't know you just you can't I can't let go of things <laughs> um so I think I do overthink stuff now knowing I'm autistic and just think a lot of stuff has kind of slid into place as to why I was like that or why I was trying to manage stuff in certain ways so it's tricky it's not it's it's hard to look back and because I wish I'd know I'd known and I wish other people around me had known and I had better support but what can you do <laughs> no yeah it's it's a shame and uh, uh, you know what the, the, the really sad thing about it is that it's caused it's caused you trauma you know I mean obviously it's made you who you are and you're doing amazing yeah. and, and that sort of thing but you still wouldn't want trauma would you really yeah yeah and um it's all entirely the, the, the thing about it is it's entirely preventable you know mm-hmm. and that must that must be really, really frustrating for you mm-hmm. as, as it sounds like uh, it is from what you're saying and so what, what happened so so soon after this you 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 realized you might be autistic and went to get um yeah potential diagnosis tell us about so, that I think I was I was either 23 or 24 and I had paid to see a private therapist because I was struggling at the time with my mental health and I thought the NHS waiting list was too long and I'd already done CBT and hadn't really found it that helpful so I thought maybe I'll try and see a private therapist who maybe knows a little bit more about like kind of sensory stuff. Again, that was the only lead I had on my problems was like kind of, you know, being oversensitive to stuff. And I kind of managed to message someone and they kind of gave me the impression that they kind of could maybe help me. And after a few sessions that I was paying for, she said, "Um, I don't think I can take you any further because you're displaying autistic traits. And I was like, excellent I'm paying you like 100 pound a session (laughs) and you can't help me so that was that was um frustrating but obviously she was right 
Um, but this had been after like a few months of seeing her kind of thing. And I think she just obviously slowly clocked it somehow. And I was like, okay. And I went home pretty, pretty upset at the fact that I felt I had wasted time trusting someone and, you know, kind of talking about my life to someone who was like, I can't take you any further. Um, but obviously I appreciate that she said it. So I think I spoke to my mum and I have an autistic brother, which I should have mentioned earlier. Um, and she was pretty on board with the idea that I could probably also be autistic because my brother has some sensory issues, but I'm definitely um, struggle with that a bit more. So she was like, do you know what? I could probably see why she said that. Um, and that's when I first kind of decided that, okay, I'll go and see the GP. Do you think that your mum knew all along and didn't say anything or, or it, it... It just it, it just occurred to her when you brought it to, to her and it fit. Yeah. I think I think because my brother is very different to me, um, particularly socially, that maybe it didn't really cross her mind that we might both be autistic because we struggle with very different things and um kind of socializing, he's a lot more nonverbal. So I can I can mask and my brother really can't do that. So I can see how maybe you know I I can kind of act and mask the fact that I'm autistic so I, I don't I don't blame her for not, yeah, <laughs> not yeah, seeing it no no yeah. no yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um yeah I mean the fact that you're articulate you know you're extreme yeah. you are very very articulate I suppose it's a double-edged sword isn't it because you know it, it gives you access to society quite in a quite effective way and you're, mm. you're more able to get maybe employment and you're more likely to be able to you know access things but on the other hand you're much more vulnerable to to masking yeah. and and I think in turn your mental health is maybe more vulnerable you yeah. know you you're, you slip the, the other thing is you're not identified you know because oh you're oh she's articulate how can it be she's articulate you know these Literally. misconceptions <laughs> and then you get missed so it's a kind of double-edged sword yeah uh, James what do you think um, well, I think this illustrates very well um, the functioning labels that are, that are used or that used, used to be used a lot more, but they're still used um, when, when it comes to autism, but also any, anybody that, that's sort of displaying um, any kind of, of difficulties. So this, this idea that um, if you're in inverted commas, higher functioning, then you're okay and and you seem to be um behaving in a neurotypical way and and you seem to be able to fit into society and you blend you're able to mask and blend into the background and maybe in my case uh, pretend to understand a lot of communication and be able to bluff your way through it when really I didn't um the social communication side of things so then you you're really not given any support with that um so it, it really is what, what you said, Chris, is like a double, double-edged sword. And it really sort of illustrates how functioning labels should really have to go in the bin and, and they really have to come up with a much more multifaceted way of addressing individuals' needs in a very personalised way. Yeah, I totally agree with you, James. Functional labels are really, really problematic. And I suspect people, like, I don't know, Emily, maybe, maybe you can tell us, but I suspect a lot of people like you who are very articulate and masked very effectively are vulnerable to being labelled as, you know, supposedly high functioning or just not even said it, just, just perceived in that way. Oh, they function very well in society. You know, everything's fine. They're not autistic, blah, blah, blah. Did you come in 
come into contact with these, these kinds of ideas yeah definitely and I I once had a, um, a hospital appointment with a consultant who said that I didn't look autistic and I was too shocked to speak <laughs> I was like I when I got out of the room I was like I shouldn't I should have said autism doesn't have a look like it doesn't it doesn't you can't tell if someone's autistic and it was just the most frustrating thing to be told that I didn't look something that I had been diagnosed and I know that he was a consultant in medicine but still you know it's yeah I do come across it quite a bit and even kind of I think it was last week and someone said how it was I was self-referring for um something and they said how severe is your autism and I just and I I just said I, I'm just autistic it's it's not it's not really about that if he'd asked me what my needs are totally okay question I can tell him you know socially what I need help with it, he asked me the severity of my autism and that's that's not right again that's an nhs service again asking and it's just the the way things are worded i'm i'm just not it's not okay <laughs> not when you've you know not when it's a difficult thing to come to terms with and people are asking you to to prove it almost and yes so yes in answer to your question i have come across it a lot <laughs> really terrible i mean we're yeah. not so james and i have come across it a lot as well and you know a lot of people tell us this and we we see it a lot all time and it's yeah no surprise but it's just it's always sad and frustrating to hear those accounts yeah. especially when it comes from you know powerful influential figures like a consultant in, yeah. in medicine you know ah oh, we've got a long way to go long way to go and that's in the UK where things are relatively yeah. <laughs> you know progress compared to other countries and other places you know so yeah it's it's not it's not great so what so what um what happened uh, then Emily so your yeah. therapist suggested that she she couldn't take you any further yeah. which was very frustrating for you um mm -hmm. and you, you spoke to your mum mm -hmm. she agreed with the idea that you may possibly be autistic and then yeah. what happened so I booked an appointment with my GP um so the GP I see there are only 10 minute slots which is very difficult to, I imagine it's the same most places, but it's very difficult to sum up your life in 10 minutes and explain why you need an autism diagnosis. And I saw a male GP the first time that I went, um, first time being the clue here. And I went in with a list, very autistic thing to do, looking back on it, of the reasons why I thought I was autistic and the fact that I had been seeing a, you know, a professional therapist who also thought it and I thought that would back it up. But he seemed very kind of dismissive is the word I would use. He 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 didn't not want to refer me, but he wasn't keen to refer me. And I left from that appointment not actually getting anywhere. He kind of put it back in my kind of ball court as to, well, you're kind of this age and, you know, you've gotten this far kind of thing. And I was like, you're not you're not, you're not the person that I want to speak to. So. I did go away from that appointment feeling pretty crushed about it because I'd been told by someone professional. I hadn't just kind of, you know, I know a lot of people kind of like self-diagnosed and that's, you know, totally valid. But I felt that because I had been told by someone of some sort of authority and profession that I might be autistic, that I might be listened to, but that wasn't the case. But yeah, I was pretty determined and I was like, right, I'm going back. But this time I'm asking for a female GP just to see why the hell not. 
might as well. And she was way more understanding and was like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. Again, went in with the list. Um, and she was like, I need to warn you that the waiting list is at least nine months. And I was like, that's fine. I, I appreciate that there are younger people at school who need to be diagnosed before me. Like I'm not in a rush, if that makes sense. Um, so I was fine to sit on a waiting list. Um, so, yeah. And then I got um, a letter about a month afterwards saying that I've been put on the waiting list after nine months I rang up and was like hello what's what's the waiting list like um and they kind of get influxes of appointments so this was 2019 so I actually ended up waiting 14 months for my assessment appointment I know like a lot of assessments are very kind of different but I didn't have like a pre-assessment I just was referred and then given all the paperwork to do and take along with me to the session and it was like a three and a half hour session in November 2019. And it was just all in that one session. It wasn't like a split um, session. And I took my mum with me and we just kind of it was really it was really hard because you go over your entire life. And it was really helpful having my mum because you have to have someone that can tell um, them about your childhood and kind of prove if that makes sense that you've kind of struggled with this your whole life yeah and what I didn't realize and at the end she was she said she had been kind of assessing me from the very beginning when she walked into the waiting room to see what my like facial expression was like and how I reacted and if I if she smiled did I smile and she was like trying to kind of gauge all these social things without me even realizing and I wasn't smiling back or <laughs> reacting back she was like yeah you weren't you weren't kind of receptive with sort of things like that and I was like oh okay I didn't realize you were testing me from the start <laughs> um but um yeah on the day she confirmed that I was autistic and the best thing in the world was she said congratulations Emily you are autistic and it was the best thing to be told it positively rather than negatively and I think it made the rest of getting to realize this about myself from a much more positive experience because it shouldn't be negative you should it should be celebrated that you're autistic I think even though you have bad days there are good days and it is what makes me me um and I also found out that um about something called alexithemia she said I you're you're coming across as very much someone that struggles to um know their feelings and describe your feelings which I think is another reason why CBT wasn't great was because like how are you feeling Emily I, I can't label my feelings I think my feelings are very extremes and I'm not very good at describing how I'm feeling or what's bothering me um which is difficult for my family and friends um but obviously there's no kind of assessing like way of like really telling that sort of thing but she said you know was something she picked up on um so that was also interesting to know but um yeah so I was 25 years old when I found that out and I'm now 27. Wow there's a lot to pick up on. Uh, James did you want to say something about the positive wording of the diagnosis is sort of congratulations I saw you unmuted as as uh... (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I've heard that a lot from people um that the professionals that do the adult diagnosis are very much more sensitive and respectful of autistic people and do it in a very compassionate and positive way. And that is fantastic. It's in stark contrast to the way that the professionals diagnosing children do it. 
Chris has got experience of this, um, but it's, and so have I with my son. The way it is done and portrayed is the way that takes you forward from that, you know, from that room. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it can go one of two ways. You can go out in a positive way because of what they said, or in a very negative way. And it's very important that you go out in a positive way because your mental health, you know, and, and your path from there, that, that, put, that puts you on your path. So I'm, I'm gl- very glad that um, you had that ex- positive experience um, mm. of that. You know, and I think it must be so scary as a parent finding something like this out about your child. But I, I always feel like I wish I could put upon like if your parent who has a child diagnosed quite early, like how lucky, <laughs> how lucky you are to know, even if it is brought across in a way that is your child's going to be stuck with this for the rest of their life, something like that. It shouldn't be. And I agree that there should be, it, it should be put across in a much better way because if anything, it's the start of a child's life if they know this about themselves. And as a parent, if it's something you can research into and ask questions about, I just, I, I kind of wish that they realised that I had, I had to wait 25 years and people are waiting 40 or 50 or even 60 years to find out this about themselves. But I totally appreciate it. it must be it must be a very scary thing to know this about your child if they're very young and they can't communicate and stuff like that but for me it's hard when you see people talking about it online that oh my son's just been diagnosed and he's you know three or four and I'm just like oh I'm so happy for you <laughs> like it's it's hard kind of having that late diagnosis and seeing other people diagnosed early you're like oh <laughs> yeah that's kind of what the charity is all about and our long-term aim it's to kind of get rid of that stigma altogether. I'm curious about uh, how your mum felt. I wish I, I wish we'd invited her to this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been good maybe to have her, mm-hmm. her experience as well. Um, but could you talk to that experience if possible? I mean, yeah. what was it that, how did your, how did your mum respond to that diagnosis? Did she, for example, experience any kind of regret or self-blame for not having pushed it early or identified it earlier or did she feel relief or what was her kind of what was her what has been her reaction to to the diagnosis yeah I think it was a real mix of all of those obviously she was sat next to me when I was told and after I was told oh you know congratulations um she said why wasn't it why didn't I see it why wasn't it picked up earlier and the assessor was like you know (laughs) that it's just the way things are and I think also because I am a girl who can mask very well and didn't really know I was doing it I think that played a big part in I was just muddling my way through life and suppressing everything and yeah I think she felt guilty but she's always been so open to all of my kind of sensory quirks and things and she's definitely the person that knows me the most in terms of that and has always been an advocate for me at school and at uni so I think she she almost didn't need to know that she she already she knew me (laughs) she knew me from such a young age she knew what I was like but I think she was frustrated she was genuinely frustrated that that I could model my way through and it not be picked up on once and to go 25 years and not (laughs) have heard that word once was was very tricky for her I think Mm fascinating and, and did it change having got the diagnosis did it change the nature of your relationship with your brother at all did anything change there or I think um for my brother he's how much younger is he he is 
21 and I'm 27. Um, so there is a, like a little bit of a gap, but I think it was nice for him to know someone else who is autistic and someone else who's a girl who's autistic. He um, goes to a autism day center and doesn't really know that, uh, that many other autistic people in life. And for him, I think it's nice for him to see that I have a job and um, that I am able to kind of hold that down. And also I'll, you know, come home and tell him what was really difficult about my day and he can appreciate that. And it's very much, I think, if we're in a noisy environment, I can look at him and be like, you're, you're getting this as well. You're, <laughs> you're like, I think we're just kind of on a similar level as well. And he's someone who can say, oh, did you find this difficult? And I'll be like, yeah, it was horrible. It was so noisy in there or something. Um, and he's also a good person. Like if we are in a noisy environment, he'll always want to come outside with me. So <laughs> he's a good partner in crime in a kind of sensory um, place. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, I think um, it's been nice for him to just have someone else who gets things a bit. I think we are quite different, as I've said, but there are a lot of things that we kind of see eye to eye on. Just going back to um, uh, about how this must, have, this must affect a lot of parents, um, I know getting my son's diagnosis made me think about my own life experiences a lot more and comparing myself to him, to my son, uh, led me to understand my own autistic identity. And I think a lot of parents will come out of finding out their children's identity to, it will encourage them to explore their own identity as well. And maybe quite a few parents, I think, will seek out their own diagnosis as well from that. So it can be like a, a, a positive thing in that way as well. Definitely agree there, James. Um, Emily, so you, you know, you sort of segued into the fact that, you know, your brother, uh, you know, is quite inspired by the fact that you've got a job and, you know, you're doing yeah. well. So that's maybe a nice point now to sort of maybe talk a little bit more about your work, actually. So you do lots of different things, don't you? Because you've got your your um, your blog and your various uh, social media channels, which are amazing. So you've got a whole suite of social media <laughs> accounts, don't you? And um, yeah, how how is that? What what what's the sort of aim of those um, activities, and how 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 has that all been going for you in uh, recent yeah. years? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that I kind of started off the blog, and I then kind of realised that I don't know, I'm quite a visual person. So that's when I kind of transferred over a bit to Instagram. I still write on my blog though. Um, and that's kind of when I really got into kind of illustrating my kind of sensory issues and sensory struggles. And obviously now that I know I'm autistic, like autistic content as well. Um, and then kind of from there, I've just kind of grown across Twitter. And I also have a podcast, which I started just on my own, just talking on my own <laughs> in um, 2017. I just kind of started making audio clips and publishing them. And I'm about to reach my 50th episode since kind of kind of 20 episodes in I started having um guests on so um I don't know I was just really keen to talk to other people about their experiences of autism and and I love to hear about people's special interests I, I love it when people kind of info dump on their special interests what, what, what are your special interests Emily great question um I would say one of my special interests is plants I have a lot of plants um and I'm very um I don't know keen to not let them die so <laughs> I'm, I'm very um 
um, specific over how I look after them. But um, that's my special interest. I'd say graphic design really is one for me. And it's a bit like it's what you study as well. It's what you become like really obsessed with. So I think I, I get very kind of deep into um, graphic design holes on the Internet and also have a lot of design books um, on all my bookshelves. So I'd say those are my kind of two um great stuff and i'm aware that you're doing some research yourself right you're a research assistant now on mm-hmm. a, a a project research project called sensory street is that right mm-hmm. yeah yeah so, could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that yeah so it's with oxford university and yeah like you said it's called um sensory street and um we've done a lot of kind of focus groups with autistic people about their kind of sensory experiences in different environments so things like kind of shops supermarkets restaurants um like healthcare settings um public transport things like that and next year we're aiming to kind of like build a kind of sensory environment and actually kind of have like that experience that people can go to to actually experience what kind of a sensory overload would feel like um potentially and it's kind of all about like educating kind of businesses about how they could like adapt their you know what they already have like say I don't know like a cafe or like a shop or something like that how they could adapt their space to be more like sensory friendly um, and more accessible so yeah hopefully that that's gonna that's gonna be really exciting and it'd be really interesting to see it kind of come to life in an actual like physical um format so yeah amazing when is that finishing when when is when are the I think uh, it's mm. gonna be kind of maybe around easter next, oh, next right, quite soon. year potentially yeah um, we've been working on it for i think over a year and a half year and a bit um mm. yeah it's, it's been a lot of kind of research to get to the point of deciding what sort of environment we want to um kind of build it into so yeah mm, amazing that's uh, really really fascinating um james yeah first of all um very, very similar on the special interest front. Gardening, total special interest of mine. I used to do that as my job for a little while. Uh, web design, graphic design, loving Photoshop. Um, <laughs> so for the, for the charity, I've been doing all those things. Um, one, uh, talking of adapting sensory settings, uh, one thing that I did struggle with at university was the actual, if, if there's quite a big lecture hall, the way that would make me feel was um, pretty awful. I'd, I'd get these migraines and things like that. I don't know it was, if it was from the fluorescent lights or uh, from the auditory that, that, that levels were different or something. Um, but maybe if someone could design some adjustments for that, that'd be good. Yeah. And I, could, I could go to some, <laughs> some uh, lectures. <laughs> The, it's it's so difficult though isn't it uh james and emily because you know people come in all sorts of shapes and sizes when it comes to sensory uh, processing right you get sensory people who are uh, you know overall their sensory profile may be more sensory seeking or they may be more sensory avoidant or they may be a mixture you know a kind of a spiky profile as, as mm. it's called and so I suppose one of the challenges I've been facing in terms of modifying a space at my university, because we're looking to try and do something like this at my university to put a creator sort of sensory room for um, 
autistic students or anyone who's neurodivergent uh, who is you know uh, experiencing significant anxiety and uh, need a sort of safe you know sensory calming space you know to go and access designing a space like that is really really challenging because of the individual differences that that people have when it comes to what works for them what, what doesn't work for them so what how would what, what are your thoughts on that emily i mean how can we overcome the complexity of individual sensory experience and processing mm. when designing a space that is trying to be more accessible for sensory mm. difficulties yeah it's difficult i mean it, this kind of this what you're talking about kind of reminds me of my brother he hates loud noises and loud music kind of out and about but he'll play really loud music in his own headphones because he can control that and it's even just within one person that it just depends on where you are and what the situation is as to whether you can tolerate something so I definitely appreciate that it's really difficult to design a space for you know just even one person let alone like a few different people who have like sensory difficulties because one day you know even I might be able to tolerate something whereas the next day it could be the exact same environment and I wouldn't be able to tolerate it so it is really tricky. I think just making it kind of adjustable is, is a good thing. So things like, you know, dimmable lights or something where you really can get kind of picky with it sort of thing. Um, and I don't know where you can add and remove things. It's, it is really tricky because well, we are all so different and we kind of prefer different things. But just, I don't know, even when it comes to sound, like, I find like a lot of music is just too loud in like shops and supermarkets and stuff. And just, I don't know, just having a fader on the wall to be able to turn something like that down would be good. So if you could make it adjustable within the space, potentially, maybe, I don't know. It is, it is a really tricky thing because it's just, it's, it's hard to include so many people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. Adjustable, configurable uh, yeah. for sure. But then you've got the additional issue of, different maybe two or three people different people accessing it trying to access something like that at the same mm -hmm. time you know and they all you know they have different needs uh really 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 uh, uh, complex um I, I mean i'm a big star trek fan <laughs> just bringing the, bring it into <laughs> i know james is as well and one of the things i love about star trek is that they have these things called holodecks in them you know and i don't know if you've ever seen seen this before but it's an amazing concept that i wish we had today because i think that would solve the issue you know the idea is that you go into this room and you can basically summon uh, holograms but a sort of holographic environment in any way you want you know and so i think that's the kind of thing that we need right we need yeah. a space where you can just say to a computer you know make it today i'm feeling sense quite sensory uh, avoidant you know yeah. make it make it you know in a way that that suits that or you know and you know kind of on on tap adjustments for the individual mm -hmm. you know would be amazing don't know what you think there james well you have got these virtual reality things now this technology that maybe we could do something like that in the future um which could be tailored for the individual so you would all put on some kind of headset uh so maybe you could control like the visual stimuli differently and and maybe the auditory stuff as well definitely the kind of whole like augmented reality and virtual reality stuff is definitely gonna i don't know i think it's definitely gonna make an impact and i can see it being quite a beneficial thing in terms of i don't know just removing yourself from a busy environment and being able to kind of cool off and 
reset like you're saying like these holograms and things like that sounds great <laughs> yeah you should go on go on youtube right emily and so just okay. type in <laughs> type in star trek holodeck and just just see what i'm saying it is it is mind-blowing <laughs> it is really really good um uh, i was gonna ask you know obviously we know we now know a lot more about sensory processing than what we did previously right you know it's a misconception to think we only have five senses for example you know i think there's thermo thermoception i think it is the sense of heat um equilibrioception as well as like the sense of balance (laughs) i mean again you've got proprioception and everything else do you think there's going to be more do you think in 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 50 years time we're going to look back and think, crikey, we knew nothing about the sensory experience. Do you know what I mean, or do you think that we have we figured it all out? What's your view? I, I don't think we figured it all out. I think you're right in that there is probably going to be loads, and we'll look back and be like, God, we only touched the surface of <laughs> how many there really are. I think I don't know. It would be it would be fascinating to to know more about the senses because I think for the majority of people, it's not something that really they're really aware of every day and for someone with sensory processing difficulties it's all you can think about so it would be fascinating to just I don't know for the general population to know more about the sensory stuff let alone like you know um, actual you know researchers in that field it'd be amazing if you could tap into and alter how things are received within kind of sensory stuff i don't know it, it would be great <laughs> i think i think this is something that should be uh, educated as a standard for for children yeah. you know in, in in primary school you know more more than it is because the sensory experience is fundamental to human life you know i mean we know what we know about the world around us and our place and how we connect with the world through our senses play such an enormous integral role in our lives and and how we how they work and how they're different and how they process and so forth you know how they how they all you know come together and whatnot they play such a fundamental issue yet you're totally right Emily I totally agree in that a lot of people aren't never think about them they're not aware of them they don't appreciate them they only think about it if they have you know, sensory processing difficulties or, or, or whatever. And, and, and they're kind of, you know, um, in touch with it in that way because of that, because of those issues, you know, but, you know, may, maybe we should be normalizing it a bit more in terms of its importance and, and role it plays in our lives. You know, maybe we need to be talking more about that. What do you think? I would love that. I'd love, I don't know if I was to mention sensory issues in a conversation for some you know for there to be a kind of understanding I feel like now that I know I'm autistic if I say that in a conversation people are pretty much on board with what that means but if I was to mention to someone say in my university days or something you know like oh I'm really struggling this is a really like sensory environment I think nine times out of ten I would have to explain what I meant and it would be nice to just have that understanding you know at an event or something not to have to lie to someone and say oh, you know, I've got to go. Whereas actually, you know, I'd like to be more upfront with people and say, actually, you know, sensory wise, this is too much of me because of this or something. I'd, I'd like, I'd like to be more honest and truthful with people, but it's, it's something at the moment I feel requires a lot of explaining. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't just say it in, in a sentence without having to explain myself. 
yeah, you know that you're going to expect some sort of battle or, yeah. or a lot of effort because people don't understand it. Or also you may be feeling that, you know, you might be misunderstood or, mm. or um, negatively labeled. You know, you might experience some stigma on it, actually. You know, mm. it, it could be that people don't believe what you're saying, you know, because they don't understand it and think, oh, she's just making a fuss. She's a pro- troublemaker. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, all this, all these problems. What do, what do you reckon, James? So that's the beauty of being um, in contact with uh, the uh, other autistic people um, because they will understand you straight away. Uh, and, you know, now we have uh, the internet, we, we can be connected a lot more. So there's this whole autistic community that we can talk um, about these issues and be understood. For instance, you mentioned, Emily, um, came across the phrase, you don't look autistic. You're in graphic design, so you'll know it's become um, a popular meme among the autistic community, um, and we sort of roll our eyes when we see it. Yeah. yeah so, uh, and we know we know what the other per- person is talking about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like that when we get a room full of autistic people, you know, it, it's a completely different experience for us because we're understood. So thanks for that, James. Totally agree. Um, But ultimately, you know, your story represents, yet again, clear examples of change that can be and should be made that could benefit a lot of people's lives. And, you know, I don't, we shouldn't, so we shouldn't, you know, I think your story is evidence, again, that we shouldn't just be sitting on what we've got and think everything is fine, we're doing great. You know, no, there's things that always need to be improved, can always be changed and enhanced, and your story is evidence of it. So really, really uh, thankful for you describing your story and taking us through it, really. No worries. It's, it's been nice to kind of chat to people who, you know, you both have autistic children and just kind of get it. It's nice to have that sense of community online, like James was saying as well, finding people of the same age as you as well as talking to people who are just at the start of their journeys with their children and stuff like that. It's really interesting to, to talk to people, at, you know, all these different stages. So, yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> No worries. It's been really our pleasure, honestly, having you on. It's been really fascinating. Um, thank you so much. I will put in the links to all of your various uh, social media accounts mm-hmm. and your po- amazing podcast that we're excited to, to be on uh, as well, uh, because we're coming on to do a little guest episode, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, at some point <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a little like switch yeah, both yeah. on each other's which little, i think is good <laughs> little collaboration little yeah collab um so yeah i'll put the links of, of all of your stuff and also i'll also put a link to your very important research uh, study that you're involved with the sensory street <laughs> uh, study which is, sounds like a very valuable piece of research i'll put a link to that as well great james was there anything else you wanted to say or add um no i, I think um it's been fascinating um and i can't wait to speak to you again emily thank you so much for coming on no worries it'll be great to have you on my podcast as well be nice to to hear a bit more about both of you (laughs) and was there anything else you wanted to to say or add emily i don't think so i think you've managed to cover my life story in an hour and a half (laughs) (laughs) that's what we specialize on here on the autism podcast (laughs) well thanks thanks so much i really appreciate it and uh all the best Thank you. Thanks again. Take care. James, speak to you soon. All the very best. Bye-bye.